Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Today, we are looking to explore the remarkable world of child autism. In this episode, we're aiming to understand the definitions, talk about some of the correct terms of what can be said and what can't be said, as well as discuss the care that is available for both the child and the caregiver. We have an expert in the field who will help us through the understanding of autism in children and help us better understand the world as well as their carers. Psychotherapist Jen Slatten has worked in the field for over 20 years, helping children, adults, families, as well as individuals on the autism spectrum. So please welcome Jen Slatten. How are you going today? Hi, wonderful. I'm happy to be here today. Now, it's so good to have you on. It's so good to finally get to talk to you in person. We've had different emails going back and forth. Right, so right. I'm yeah. really glad. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so while I know the pretty much the Google definition as to what a psychotherapist is, what is the practice that differs you from other fields of therapy that do exist? Well, I think it's different in different countries. So I'm in California in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So in California, I have a license. So my master's degree is actually in social work, but social work encompasses a wide range of ways to help people. Mm -hmm. And so post-master's, I became licensed as a, it's called a licensed clinical social worker. So I'm able to do um, license therapy, collect insurance, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. There are other master's level therapists that have different initials. And then there's PhD, which would be a psychologist that's also licensed. Mm-hmm. And none of us at this level, we don't prescribe medication. That would be a psychiatrist or a medical doctor level. Okay. So there's so many different ways in which the field sort of works and so many people do different things. So it's always, it's always nice to see the process and see how they differ in action. Cause you sort of hear it. You're like, how's it? It's a therapist in general. So the difference between a therapist and a psychotherapist and all these different things. So it's nice to be able to hear what a defined psychotherapist actually does. Okay. Good. (laughs) So what was something that really got you into helping people and helping individuals in such a intimate way? Well, I think just as a child, I was always that kind of kid, you know, that just wanted to talk in more depth, wanted to help people. I think it was just kind of my personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, in my own life, I am very curious about my own psychology and there's nothing better than having a deep conversation with a friend, figuring out our psyches. You know, I just, I find that really entertaining, you know? 
<laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> and people tell me this must be so hard. And don't you get tired of listening to people talk about, you know, depression? And No, not at all. <laughs> No, I love those little tests that you get to do. The little, um, what kind of personality are you? What oh, kind of? Uh-huh. I love taking those and I love comparing them with other people that I I send it to. I'm like, oh, go do that test. What are you? Yeah, right, right. I love sort of um, diagnosing people in a sense. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. So yeah, that must be, it's, it's an interesting job to sort of get into because it's not something that you wake up one morning and be like, I'm going to go be a type of therapist. I'm going to go and yeah. talk to people. So it's it's amazing that there's a specific area that you found an interest in and you took from what you learned as helping people as actually turning it into a job of helping people in so many other ways as well. So no, it's a pretty amazing thing to jump from uh, what you saw as a child and what you go to as an adult. Yeah, it wasn't a direct line because I initially wanted to go into special ed, special education. Okay. Um, and then I found out this is not for me. It's, you know, the bureaucracy of schools and the rigidity and the mm-hmm. all of that was just not for me. And then I ended up uh, volunteering with a program for autistic children. And I just fell in love with it. I loved the kids. I loved, you know, I just was really drawn to it. And so that led me down a path of working in the field of autism. Mm -hmm. And I got trained in behavior analysis, which is a a way that they used to teach is is how you work with autistic people. And um, my favorite job I think I've ever had was I was a parent consultant so I would go into the family home and I would help them with challenges with their mostly autistic kids other Mm -hmm. kids with special needs and when you're in the office setting it's a lot different than when you're actually in the home Mm -hmm. and you can observe exactly what's going on you can model what to do and I mean, to say I was really good. It was like my niche. I was really good at it and I loved it. And then the funding sources changed and they stopped funding that type of thing. So I kind of moved out of Mm -hmm. doing that. So I did that and I became a therapist. And so I kind of combined both of those things. No, it's, it's pretty incredible just how the difference and change between, like you said, an office environment to seeing what the, how they are every day their day-to-day yeah. life the good and the yeah. bad and yeah. yeah so I think like when I was looking into a little bit of a bio from what was sent to me I saw that you also conducted assessments as mm-hmm. well um how did those assessments go because it's really not like you just looking at a person and just being like okay you've got it you don't kind of thing yeah. so what's the how's the assessment procedure Well, there's two different kinds of assessing. One is that I do diagnostic assessments. Okay. So I will look at a person's symptoms and traits and figure out, you know, are they autistic? Do they meet the, the, um, you know, we have this kind of Bible of diagnostic, (laughs) you know, (laughs) are they depressed? Are they, you know, so I do that kind of assessing. 
And then for autistic children, a lot of times they'll do um, kind of a behavior assessment where it goes much deeper into what's going on with them, if they're having like a lot of, I say a lot, but it's not uncommon for autistic children to have meltdowns and they can be pretty severe at times. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times you don't know why they don't communicate it. And so the assessment is really picking apart and looking into the details of what could be causing this. Do they have any health issues? Do they have sensory, which is another thing we can talk about. Like they can be very sensitive to Mm -hmm. different, like to sounds or lights or have a need for excessive movement that could contribute to a meltdown, um, their inability to communicate, how the parents react to a meltdown is huge. So you figure out, well, what do you do when it happens? How do you react? How do you, so it's a pretty in-depth, it's, I, feel, I say it's like being a detective to really mm-hmm. figure out what's going on. Well, cause it's a, it's incredible way of sort of seeing, diagnosing a child in terms of the level. Cause I know there's different levels of on the spectrum. So there's different levels that do exist. Well, then there's, according to the DSM, there's three levels. Okay. So level one means that the person would need very little support in life. Mm -hmm. Level two is moderate and level three is someone who would need a lot of support. But Mm -hmm. um, a lot of autistic adults are speaking out and they're saying that they don't agree with levels because someone who appears to be a level one, you can't see any traits, they're able to have a conversation, but you don't know when they go home, they might not even be able to function. It might've been so draining for them that they can't even, you know, cook themselves a meal or something. Mm -hmm. So they learn how to function in this, what we call a neurotypical society, which is a majority We don't use the word normal because what's normal, right? Yeah. (laughs) But the neurodiverse versus neurotypical. And so a lot of times they learn, they call it masking. They learn to act in a way where you can't see Mm -hmm. that they're autistic. But things can be super hard for them to to even function. And so um, they... Some, some of the autistic adults say they like the idea of saying how much support a person needs rather versus whether they are low or high functioning. Okay. So, yeah. Wow. So it really does depend on, it's really deeply depending on each individual. Absolutely. It's not, there's yeah. no really set diagnosis, I guess, in a way. Well, it's a spectrum. And mm-hmm. so, um, but someone can be what seems like a high end of the spectrum, but then can't organize their home enough to get great. They might be great at, you know, building computers and yet they can't get groceries. They can't organize themselves enough to take Mm -hmm. care of their daily needs. So it can be that extreme. Okay. Wow. That's no, that's something to, I can't wait to dive in that into it a little bit more and get deeper into it. I think I got so caught up in this. So I know. So. There's so many ways to go here. I know. I know. I think every. I think there definitely needs to be more than one episode on this for sure. 
<laughs> so before we dive even deeper into the topic, um, we love to start with a little icebreaker just to get to know you a little bit more. All right. Um, yeah. So just when I ask these questions, just feel free to share the first thing that sort of comes to your head. Um, it's not it's not going to be difficult. It they, should used be... to, they used to do this in psychoanalysis, right? Well, Where you <laughs> We are psychoanalyzing you, so there you go. Okay, so the first one is a favorite book of yours. Well, so I'm a nonfiction person, and (laughs) I ran across this book. It's been around for a while, but it's called The Reason I Jump, and it's written by an autistic boy when he was 13 years old. And he's nonverbal, he couldn't speak, but he communicated it through a letter board, so through spelling. Mm -hmm. And he's actually written at least two books. I don't know if he wrote wrote another one, but it was so fascinating because he would um, write a short section on how he experiences a lot of different things, like how he experiences clothing and how does he experience being outdoors and so I, I did a whole um, series on Instagram about it because it's so it helps us see what it's like, the experience of an autistic person. And then it's so amazing that this boy had this kind of insight. So I just love that book and I always recommend it to people. They made a little no. movie. They made a documentary about it too. Sorry to interrupt you. No, that's fine. <laughs> no, I I was just gonna say I think that's it's an amazing way that even though he can't verbally express and show his life, he can he can write it all down and put it in a book and yeah. have so many other people experience it as well. So yeah, and that's a whole nother topic. The the ones that spell. Yes, <laughs> told you more than one episode. There needs to be a series in this. so the next one is a favorite movie of yours okay so I saw this movie I don't know it's got to be at least 20 years old but and because it's psychological okay it's called um, ordinary people and it's just so fascinating about a family and a kid who has mental problems and he goes to a counselor and I know the ending is that all kind of comes together. And I just thought that was an amazing movie. So if you haven't seen it, it's, I don't know, it's old. So <laughs> I will have to look it up and see whether I have seen it. Um, I stopped looking at years of movies when my family just say it's movie night. So whatever movie they say they want to oh, play. Okay. Those, so I, I take what uh, I can get with that. So I'll definitely have a look and see if I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, the next one is a favorite podcast of yours. Well, I jump around a lot. Um, I'll just, I don't, you know, like, I'll listen to one here and one there. But um, there is one that actually I was on. It's called Neurodiversity Gold. Mm-hmm. And this is by an autistic man. And he works with entrepreneurs that serve the autistic community. And so he interviews a lot of people in a lot of different segments it's it's really um interesting for me mm-hmm. well that's yeah. yeah no that's amazing from i think from a person who's experienced it themselves it's always nice to sort of oh, yeah. talk with people who are also exactly. in the community and yeah. yeah yeah the next one is a famous role model that you have 
So to be honest, I don't really have a role model because I don't look at kind of life that way. Mm-hmm. I find, you know, things that I admire about people. Um, but I don't hold somebody as someone who I'd kind of want to model after. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in thinking about it, people that I really admire, um, a lot of times, and I'm not saying this just because this is a podcast we're on, but my clients that I work with, autistic parents that have dealt with so much and are so determined to help their kids. And I just, I get so much out of that, you know, about working with people like that. But I, I wouldn't say I'd have any particular person as a role model. Mm-hmm. Well, that's perfect. I think characteristics are something that also are role modeled over. You Not having one particular, I think I've had a couple of guests who said there's a characteristic in a person they really admire, but not set in one person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think, I, I think that's admirable as well. Uh, the last one is a favorite course that you've completed. Well, as you can see, I'm not totally well-rounded. All of my stuff is (laughs) my profession, but I've been learning. I've been taking several courses on internal family systems, Mm -hmm. and that's a form of, it's a model of therapy that's um, been amazing to learn. And it's been around for a while, but it's become really popular. And it's also, it helps you know, deal with trauma and any things that we're holding from our past that's kind of buried. And autistic adults, a lot of times are carrying a lot of trauma. And it's one Mm -hmm. kind of therapy that, because talk therapy, a lot of times is not work well with the autistic brain. And this is something that um, is really effective. So I'm learning to do that. And and I'm, I'm doing it myself as a client because I love to explore and it's amazing. So. No, I think, I think that's pretty great to be able to, I think also enhance your understanding as well and sort of diving deeper into it. Yeah. I think I've had a couple of guests who are also um, in the therapy area and they're always, they said they're always doing little courses here and there. They They never stop really learning anything. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that's really great when you just keep retraining, uh, retraining your brain to also think about things in a different way as well. And the field evolves, right? And they come up with new techniques or new ideas. And trauma, the understanding of trauma, has grown so much. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's always more to learn. Yeah. So I think I think that's great. <laughs> Thank you. So um, now we're talking into why we're here today, talking a little uh-huh. bit more about parenting a little bit more about um being on the autistic spectrum uh to start off with what do you think the definition of parenting is well i think it's the responsibility to raise your children in a a, well i mean parenting can be you're just you know taking care of kids but i think good parenting or positive parenting is where you're creating a safe space for your children. You allow them to develop into their own person and you support them in understanding themselves and having, um, you know, the ability to impact their environment. Mm -hmm. 
versus, you know, you just got to follow rules and do what you're told, you know, the mm-hmm. old way. Yes. <laughs> and no, there is definitely an old way. Um, like, I mean, as we said, the whole idea of parenting has sort of grown and evolved into so many different mm-hmm. things. Why do you think that the idea of parenting has changed? I just, I think that we know so much more about what nurtures children. I think that, you know, if we go back through the history of psychology and how children were treated, um, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, meaning, you know, you hit them to get them to obey and that kind of thing. I just think there's been a huge evolution. And now that we understand that all of that is damaging to kids and, you know, I mean, I think people will say, well, I was hit as a kid and I'm just fine. And I'll think, well, get, get in my office with me and we'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I think, I mean, that's definitely got to have some trauma attached to it, even if they don't recognize it exactly. Yeah. as well. And I yeah. think we don't discuss, I mean, like you said earlier, the whole idea of trauma has definitely grown um, immensely. I mean, if I think growing up, I never under, even understood what, trauma was you never even heard Mm -hmm. that word and now it's in every conversation I have with a friend it's in every conversation I have with parents it's in every situation that you're in yeah it's a a constant reminder that trauma does exist so Mm -hmm. it's a big leap from going into it being non-existent to it being the household name well and the idea that you just stuff it down and you just get over it and you just do what you're supposed to do. And so that holding in and burying of trauma and emotions and stuff is totally unhealthy. But that's mm-hmm. how I think society has been and still, I'm sure, exists in a lot of families. Yes. Yes. And, and I think, yeah. oh, yeah, I think culture has a big impact on it. <laughs> so when talking about children with the autism spectrum disorder I usually like when I hear the word disorder it I I wanted to get this clear and I wanted to know your expert opinion as to the terminology that should and shouldn't be said when it comes to I think ASD when it comes to how it's described as because I know a lot of people they have we, we have a scientific definition, and then we have a societal ex, um, understood definition as to what you can and can't say. So I wanted to know, I know it says in the questions, it says that I'm, it's planned out to say autism spectrum disorder, but I wanted to know from you whether or not that is an okay or not thing to, to say. Right. Well, exactly what you said. I think there's our medical model which is like you get diagnosed with, you know, acid reflux or, you know, it's a medical description. And so the medical model looks at mental health in that way. And Mm -hmm. so it does call it autism autism spectrum disorder. So it kind of depends on who you're talking to, but in society and socially, 
really autism is a neurological difference in the brain. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a disorder. It's a difference. Mm-hmm. And we need to understand that difference and the person, the autistic person needs to understand it and how we can create a more inclusive environment and society for different brain types, just like someone with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is Mm -hmm. a a disorder, but they also have amazing strengths and they have challenges. And same with autistic individuals, they have amazing strengths. Um, I was just talking to an autistic woman. She said, because there's some, you know, organizations and they want to look for a cure for autism. Mm -hmm. And she said, if they cured autism and got rid of autism, we probably wouldn't be in the world we are today because the autistic brain is so creative and so innovative and has done so much for humanity. Mm -hmm. And when they start to look back at, like they think Einstein was probably autistic, Leonardo da Vinci was probably autistic. There are a lot of our tech guys are autistic, the big, you know, so, um, you know, we owe a lot to that world and that's not a disorder, Mm. but it's a difference. Yeah. And I think like, that's why I wanted to have your opinion before I even addressed the upcoming questions. Cause I think the whole, the whole idea of like it being described as a disorder, it doesn't sit, didn't sit right with me. I wasn't sure how, so I would rather have that terminology down, especially the way that society is today where we're, we're acknowledging the misuse of words, misuse of mm-hmm. terminologies that shouldn't, shouldn't be said. So yes, I'm glad that I got your opinion on that. Well, I'll bring up one other thing that um, what I learned was what's called person first language. So mm-hmm. it's a person with autism, but now a lot of the autistic adults are saying, no, 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 we're autistic. You can't separate the autism from us. So they're autistic people instead of a person with autism. Mm -hmm. So I've gotten used to, I had to untrain my brain (laughs) to learn that language out of respect for Mm -hmm. what they're saying they want to be called. However, some people prefer the person with and the, you know, so a lot of times it's really helpful to ask the person how they would like to be referred to. Mm-hmm. And I think it's another thing of some people not even wanting to be characterized as someone with autism as well. I mean, sometimes there are a lot of people who uh, I think I've met a couple of people who just don't even want to be called mm-hmm. autistic. They don't want to have that mm-hmm. branding attached to them. So there's also that sort of dilemma where you're not really sure, should I mention it? Should I talk about it? Is that something that's okay? And well, I'll probably say that go out on a limb that that person's probably carrying trauma about Mm -hmm. being autistic and Mm -hmm. that they're made to feel like it's wrong. It's bad that they're different, that they're not normal. And so they hide the reality of who they are. Mm -hmm. That's what I would do. Yeah, no, I think it's a, I think getting the terminology, I think, I think we need to start agreeing on, some sort of set of terminology, I think, especially in terms of how society is today, where we're all becoming so comfortable with knowing how to call a person, knowing how to introduce someone and being comfortable with the terminology that 
is good. So I'm really glad that I got to clarify that because it's something that um, yeah. something that I also wondered as well, like in terms of how society is today, it's not as the same as it was 10, 15 years ago where people were scared to be different. People were scared to be um, feeling different ways or anything. So now we're a lot more comfortable with the fact that there is a diverse use of language. Well, I think it really depends on, you know, there's different parts of the country here in the U.S. and like I said, different cultures that still want everybody to look alike and sound alike and, you know, yes, <laughs> that don't <Yeah>. support <laughs> diversity. Um, and I just want to circle back for a second about someone not wanting to say they're autistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's perfectly fine to just not wanting to wear a badge or blurt it out or, you know, that's your privacy and whatever. So I don't want to say you know, make it sound like that's really a bad thing. But what it just struck me as someone who might be ashamed of mm-hmm. their autism. That's why it made me think of trauma. But you don't have to tell your business to everybody. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's the whole idea that we're dealing with as well. Like the, sometimes people are getting too much in to each other's spaces. <laughs> so yeah, I I am very glad that we got to talk about the terminology before I before I go ahead and talk about it a little bit more because okay. I'd rather be correct about it instead of referring to everyone as a sort of a generalized area. So okay, it's good that we had that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, what impact does the autism spectrum in children have on the the idea of parenting? Huge. <laughs> Huge. <laughs> because they're wired differently, right? Mm-hmm. And so the strategies of parenting autistic children um, are actually, you can use for neurotypical children, but not the other way around a lot of times because mm-hmm. um I mean, there's so many different things, but in general, there's always differences. But in general, they like routine, consistency. They like to know ahead of time when something's going to happen. Like I said, their sensory needs must be addressed. So um, some kids get easily overstimulated. Other kids may crave kind of input because their senses are not very kind of dulled in a way Mm -hmm. Um, and if they don't get their sensory needs met most likely they're going to have issues of hyperactivity or emotional you know reactivity um, things like that so it's so important to get a diagnosis if you can Mm -hmm. and understand that it's not um this horrible thing, but it's, oh, now I know that I need to learn how to work with my child in a different way to help them thrive and, you know, get what they need. Mm -hmm. And what, how can parents be more informed about the signs and the symptoms of ASD and also like the resources that are sort of available to them? Right. So, you know, we're in different countries, so I'm not sure what is quite available there. Yeah. Um, first of all, I would 
look up developmental milestones and watch your child's development. And those developmental milestones are, you know, for neurotypical children, you can find that online. And so I would just track, you know, are they speaking on time? Are they, you know, walking on time? Are there other putting two words together, things like that, and watch for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you see a discrepancy um, here we go, you know, people go to their pediatrician. Um, but I've heard stories from parents that will say, well, I, I felt like something was wrong, but the doctor said, oh, they'll just grow out of it. And then they don't grow out of it. And then they've kind of missed this period where you can have early intervention services. Mm-hmm. And um, so you really have to... Um, be a mama bear or papa bear. You know, you really have to trust your instincts about your child. And if something doesn't feel right, or if you notice you go on a play date and your child is not really playing with the other kids or running around with them, that's a little, it's a little red flag. And to start to look versus being in denial and saying, well, I don't want that to happen. So, oh, it can't be my... We, that happens a lot too, right? You don't want to face that maybe there's something different yeah. here, but okay. to get get on it and and fight for what you feel is going on. Mm-hmm. So with every symptom and every sign that sort of comes about, is there ages that sort of that don't come out when they're younger that sort of show a little bit when they're a bit older? Well, a lot of, um, so autistic kids develop differently mm-hmm. and very often, not everyone at all, but um, it's very common to find an autistic child that loves letters and numbers and colors and shapes and at a very early age, way sooner than a neurotypical child, they can say the whole alphabet they can look at a book and say, oh, that's an octagon, that's a hexagon, that's a, you know, a two years old, or they're still, they're yeah. learning to read really. Or like some of them have this amazing capacity with those types of things. But when it comes to maybe social communication or, you know, they can, you know, say the alphabet, they can count to 100, but they can't ask for milk or something. They can't ask for things or they can't. Mm -hmm. So you'll see uh, um, an inconsistency in the development where some things are above and some things are below. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of throughout, throughout their lives, pretty much. Okay. So how can you tell the difference between someone who, a child with autism who has the lack of social skills and also someone who a child who's just very shy or very non-social so is there a difference definitely so there's um autism has uh character classes of of symptoms or traits so it has not just one of these things but they have to meet criteria and the two main categories are social communication and then kind of like ritual routine, um, being over-focused on something of interest, self-stimulating behavior, which is, we've probably all seen the image of kids, you know, flapping their hands or rocking their bodies or something. 
Um, so it would be more than just being shy for sure. Mm -hmm. And now talking a bit about the misconceptions that sort of come about, and I know there will probably be so many to list out. <laughs> what are some of the common ones that parents have about autism? Well, um, I think a lot of people still don't really understand what it means. And their image of autism is, you know, a child sitting in the corner, um, being totally shut off from the outside world and just in their own worlds. And they don't want to engage with people. And they're, and I think, um, you know, that's a frightening thing. But what we know is even those kids that do that, they sometimes write books, you know, <laughs> The kid that was nonverbal that wrote a book through spelling, he probably, you know, sat in the corner and seemed like he was in his own world. And they often are very attuned to what's going on around them, but they don't mm -hmm. have the facial affect to, or they don't have the eye contact to look like they're paying attention. Uh, but I've had so many experiences of the child seems like they're just in their own world and I'm talking to the parents and then they do something to let you know they've heard exactly what you just said. You know, hmm. so you can yeah. never assume, don't underestimate um, the, the nonverbal, don't assume that that means that they are cognitively low. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, if they do these repetitive movements, it's not something... It's, it usually helps their brain, it helps them regulate, it helps them calm down because their sensory systems are out of whack. So mm -hmm. we don't want to like over control or make them look normal. That's a huge thing that, you know, parents don't want their kids to stand out. So we have to make them look like neurotypical children. And that mm -hmm. can be damaging because sometimes they can't sit still or they need to move or they have some repetitive sounds or something. Then when we try to just suppress them, then it can cause more and more stress. Okay. And so what can we as a society, as a community, what can we do to sort of dispute some of these misconceptions? Well, you know, I think it, it starts with the family and then it goes to the school. Um, I think it is about educating. I think schools can be amazing and can be horrible places for autistic kids to where mm -hmm. parents will pull them out and homeschool them. And I used to be so opposed to homeschooling. <laughs> and now I think, yeah, go for it, you know, because sometimes the school, at least here in the U.S., many kind of the average classroom caters to the majority. Mm -hmm. And I read a statistic somewhere that 40% of kids or people are neurodiverse. So maybe not autistic, but have dyslexia or attention deficit or some kind of neurological difference. Mm -hmm. And if the classroom is, y'all have to sit quietly at your desk, you have to do what you're told, you have to do this assignment, you know, some of these kids cannot do that. Or they do that masking I was talking about, where mm -hmm. they act how they're supposed to act and they do what they're supposed to do. And then they come home and have a just a meltdown because it was so stressful to get through the school day. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really kind of catering to the needs of the diversity of learners and students and 
children. And, you know, if you see someone out in public with a child that's doing something odd, you know, don't stare at them or don't ask about what's wrong yep. you know, or blame the parent for, you know, take better care of your kid or how can I let your kid do that? Or, you know, it's, it's more just accepting of differences. Mm-hmm. It's amazing in schools, the amount of times that you, you think, really think about it. There's a, probably like 30 kids to one teacher and probably half yeah. of them, as you say, are neurodiverse in some way. Different learners, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it's amazing how many, this is exactly why when I uh, did teaching for a year, I studied it for a little bit and I could not carry it through. There is no way I could do 30 kids to myself and you probably get like, 18 of them surviving the day so it it was not going to be an idea for me to do so the way that teachers handle it it's amazing how some of them go through yeah and not enough support or resources for the kids that need it yeah exactly yeah but i have seen some i'm sorry i have seen some amazing classrooms too and teachers that especially here we have special education classes that are small Mm-hmm. you know, six students and a couple aides and, you know, um, and I've seen some of those that were kind of scary and I've seen some of those that were amazing. So. Yeah, no, it sounds like, I think we're all growing in terms of how we see society and how we see children as well. So it's nice to know that there's a huge development. It's a slow development, but it, we're getting to understand it a little bit more, which is, I think is, I mean, any small thing is a big, is a big change. Absolutely. Yeah. So now how can parents and caregivers best support the emotional, social, and even cognitive development of children with ASD? Yeah. So that was a lot of things. Yes. <laughs> the, but to me, the most important thing to do with your children is to validate them. So um, if a child's getting upset, you don't start to talk to them about why they're upset. You know better. You shouldn't do that. I told you not to, and you're doing it again. Do not go there, but just validate. I see that you're upset because you have to come inside and you don't want to. That kind of parenting, even if you're not sure they understand what you're saying, um, they feel it. These kids are super, a lot of them are super sensitive and they pick up on all of that. And so their brain, when they start, especially autistic kids, when they start to get emotional, they're not in a rational place and they can get to a very high level of, I mean, I, I, when I talk to these kids, I say, is it kind of like a volcano in your brain? She's like, yes, yes. You know, they're not in control of it. And a lot of, you know, what is kind of natural for a parent to do is to stop, stop that. Stop crying. Stop yelling. You know, I told you, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And all it does is it increases that intensity of that volcano. And if the child is processing any of it, they feel worse because they cannot stop and they can't have a conversation with you and they didn't do it on purpose because they're just reacting as a child or as an autistic child. So if you speak at all to them in that state, you, I understand you're so mad. 
it's okay. You know, I'm here for you. You validate. And that a lot of times will bring down the energy. And if you think of yourself with your family or friends, or if you're really angry about something, and instead of saying, stop talking so loud and don't talk to me that way, they say, oh, I understand that really made you angry. That was so hard on you. I, I get it. It's like this, yes, it's a totally different energy, right? Yes. We need to do that with our children. They're people, yeah. they're little people, and we need to help them. And they're not going to learn by the best way that they can learn is if you prepare ahead of time for situations versus reacting once it's happened or after the fact. So if you know that your child melts down when they have to come inside, then you plan for that. You give them time to transition. You help them through the emotion of it versus reacting you know, right in that moment, all you can do is help them go through the emotion, help them feel safe. And then don't, after the fact, have this long discussion about how bad their behavior was. Mm -hmm. There's this movie that I watched not so long ago, um, dealing with sort of a child who's autistic and didn't want to uh, get out of the car. There's one mm -hmm. scene that didn't want to get out of the car. The way that the parents sort of dealt with it is that she threw a tantrum as well. She, they were both, so they were both just going, throwing a tantrum to a point where the child just stopped and stared right. at the extent that the parent was throwing a tantrum and then it just calmed down and got out of the car. So yeah. like, I felt it really took back a lot of the definitions of what you were saying as well, trying to have that emotional connection to the child and trying to get them to understand that you understand how they feel. I mean, not to the extent of you throwing a tantrum as well, yeah, but yeah. to some extent that there, there is that sort of need for, for the child to visibly yeah. see. Yeah. Well, so in situations like that, if a child's in the middle of a meltdown and you do something really novel and surprising, that can mm -hmm. knock their brain off out. And they're like, what was that? But if you keep doing it, it's not going to continue to work because you're really not meeting the child's needs and you're mm -hmm. not helping them learn how to deal with these strong emotions. You know, I would say that's more of the surprise factor mm -hmm. than okay. a, good, a good parenting strategy. <laughs> okay. So not, a, not an everyday use. No. <laughs> it's a it's special like, case use. It reminds me of, you know, when the kid hits you, I'm going to hit you back. You know, you don't hit kids back. Yeah. You know, you're no. the grown up, you know, and that's yeah. not what you were saying, but it just reminded me of that. Yeah. No, I think, um, I think a lot of films really take talk about autism in terms of, I mean, we've seen the movie on Helen Keller and how she, that situation as well and how she grew up. So I think there's so many ways that the media sort of takes yeah. its description yeah, um, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad in terms of the extent that they sort of drive right. the whole idea of autism. My, um, I, everyone on the show who's watched the show before and other episodes know that I refer to movies a lot okay. <laughs> because it's my only point of reference of like me trying to understand sure, different sure. situations. So 
Yes, I, I do apologize if I mention the movies. No. Well, I hear, um, you know, Rain Man. Have you seen that movie? Yes. Yeah. So a lot of people yeah. get that stereotype that that's what autism is. And that's actually a rare type of autism where they can, you know, count toothpicks on the floor, you know, that kind of stuff. It's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. No, it's it's pretty incredible just how how visually descriptive a lot of people sort of describe how autism feels. I guess we're talking about in the book written by the autistic child as well and how descriptive it must Mm -hmm. have been for them to even describe the texture of the cloth that they were putting on their, on themselves. And um, it's amazing to see it. I think we've said this earlier. It's amazing to see it from their perspective, whether it's through podcasts, whether it's through books or any type of thing. It's amazing. Um, I think I love to see that a whole lot more and have that be in the in the stereotypical world and have that be something that you just see on the everyday. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, what advice do you have for parents who are just starting to learn more about ASD and how to support their child? <clears throat> Right. So um, once you get the diagnosis, here in the U.S., a lot of kids will get speech therapy, occupational therapy, and what's called ABA, which is Applied Behavior Analysis. And um, that's a whole thing that I think parents should um, do research on because it's um, what they call evidence-based therapy. But... um, that a lot of autistic adults are saying that it was traumatic for them. Um, so there's some programs that can be beneficial. Uh, it comes from this idea that we want to change a child's behavior and have them act more neurotypical and did not attend to the emotions of a child. Mm-hmm. And I was trained in it. And I've always kind of done my own thing because there are aspects of it that I think are helpful. But, um, you know, things like I want you to, you know, do what I'm telling you to do. The child doesn't want to, has a meltdown. As soon as the meltdown's done, now you have to do what I want you to do. You have to follow through with what I said. So it's a very (laughs) kind of dominating, it's, it's, doesn't look at the individual and the child, what they like, what, you know, you're supposed to have quiet hands, you're supposed to make eye contact, both things that are not, you know, comfortable for a lot of autistic people. Eye contact is almost painful. So I would just be really careful about those kind of programs. Should be child-led, child-friendly, playful, fun, um, And sometimes they'll get a ton of hours, which can be really overwhelming to families where someone works one-to-one with a child, Mm -hmm. you know, two to five hours every day. Um, So I just be really careful about that and and do your research. Mm -hmm. Um, Occupational therapy is usually amazing that I've seen. Of course, you can always get someone who's not good at what they're doing, but um, yeah especially for the young kids, because the the sensory integration problems that a lot of autistic 
people have, kids have. The occupational therapy helps their sensory system get more organized. And it's usually fun for the kids. I have gyms where they're swinging and jumping and climbing and ball pits. And and the way occupational therapists work with kids is very kind of child-friendly. So that's usually, you know, really helpful. But you still got to observe, get involved, make sure. Like if your child starts crying every time they go, that's a sign. And the Mm -hmm. professional might say, well... They just have to get used to it. Yeah, maybe once or maybe twice, but after that, they should want to come. And then with speech therapy, the same thing. Sometimes it can be really rigid. Sometimes it can be very child-friendly and playful. So um, I think that's the most important. So there's a way to sort of keep trying different therapists until you find one that really fits your child, I guess. Therapists and teachers... And mm-hmm. you might get pushed back. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the only time slot we have. Well, then I'll wait. You know, don't yeah. let a professional talk you into something that you feel is not nurturing for your little two-year-old, little three-year-old. You know, I, I mean, I just talked to someone who, it was a speech therapy group, I think. And she was, in, and the child just cried like every session for about a month before the mom pulled her out. Wow. And I thought, don't wait that long, you know? Yeah. Because I guess it could also damage how the child sees all of it. Yeah. It's traumatizing, right? We talk about trauma. And I really want my child to be in this group so they can learn to talk and then get along with kids. And you have to be with where your child's at. Yeah. And it it can just take them longer. A lot of like like toileting, self-care skills, communication, it can all take longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are those cases where they remain nonverbal or they need someone to care for their needs. There are those kind of individuals, mm-hmm. but how many of those, you know, inside, we just assume that they don't know what's going on when maybe they do. And we just haven't found a way to connect with them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's amazing just how, how much support is also out there as well the minute that you start looking and it's it's something that you definitely have to look for but it's um to have those amount of resources i was looking at it even while i was doing a little bit of research for today and there's so many different pdf files so many different people that are completely always there to talk to in terms of if you need quick help or anything like that. So it's amazing to see the amount of resources and support that is out there. Yeah. You just have to be a little picky and choosy. Yes. You know, yes, and, no. and, and don't just trust what a, I tell people too, you know, if you, don't just take my word for it. I'll give you recommendations and advice and things that I believe in, but if that doesn't feel right for you and your child. And mm-hmm. don't, don't take what I have to say. I think a lot of times we hold doctors and professionals and, well, they should know. I don't really understand autism, so I'm going to take their word for it. And you just have to trust. I keep you know, repeat myself, but you have to trust yeah. yourself. Yeah. No, exactly. And I yeah. think trust what your child child says as well, I think, is a big yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So Absolutely. now we've got some questions from, audience, from the audience that okay. we would love to send over to you okay. and share over. Um, I've mentioned a couple of them 
already while we're talking, but um, I think a couple of them are a little bit new. So I would love to see your response to that. Okay. Um, the first one is how can employers create a more inclusive workplace environment to support families with autism or families with children with autism? So how can a workplace support a family? Yeah, well, in terms first- of like, I think, I think giving um, leave and things like that and to be there for if oh, a for family parents. is, for yeah, for parents. Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, be flexible. And, you know, I've had parents that have had to quit their job because they want to be there for their autistic child. Mm-hmm. Parents that will tell me, oh, my, my boss is so supportive, so I can take time off to, because a lot of times, especially early when you're their first diagnosed, there's a lot of assessments and appointments and things to go to. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitely needed. And I don't know, in Australia, what's, what are the companies like there? Do they, are they pretty I supportive? Think- I think in the last couple of years since COVID, we've found ways to do a hybrid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that too, right? So yeah, that, that's here, been a lot helpful. Here they want to, like some people want the government to provide more family leave, paid leave. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a controversy here. So I, I think it's more up to the company if they offer it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The next one is how can I tell my child's siblings that they didn't mean to cause harm or they didn't mean to have a fight? That the autistic child didn't mean to cause harm? Okay. Yes. 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 Siblings is a huge issue too, because a lot of times what happens is they get the expectation because they don't have as many challenges. They kind of feel the pressure to be perfect or be the good kid or so you have to kind of be careful about that and I would say give them one-to-one attention let them vent to you about how Mm -hmm. they feel about their autistic sibling Mm -hmm. Uh, some siblings are so supportive and they help and they and other siblings can be really resentful and hate having an autistic sibling and why does he always get to get away with stuff that I can't get away with and all that. So let them vent and don't make them wrong for how they feel. You know, don't say that about your brother. He can't help it. Say, Oh, I know. Same the validating thing, right? I know it's yeah. really, it's really can be really hard to have, you know, Johnny as your brother an autistic brother because he doesn't understand the way things, you know, the, he gets mad really easily or something. And I, I really, so give your, your sib, the sibling that opportunity to have one-to-one time with you doing something. I know you probably have no time because you're, <laughs> but that um, you get to do something that's child-led with the sibling so they feel important and mm-hmm. that they can say whatever they want to say. And you can even say, you know, you can tell me that, let's not say that in front of your brother, but, you know, anytime you want to talk to me about your feelings, because we don't want to tell Johnny that you can't stand him or something, you know. <laughs> No, exactly. I think especially when it comes to who's going to get in trouble, the kind of like ways that um, one child gets told off is going to be different to 
the other child yeah. as well. well. So And so that's what I say in the strategies that you use for autistic children, you can extend to your neurotypical children. So mm-hmm. in trouble, I'd kind of let go of the need to punish mm-hmm. and to be proactive. So if you know they're going to fight over the train set, then when the train sets out, you either need to be there or you need to set up a structure for taking turns or something. So you have to kind of preempt because if you just mm-hmm. leave a lot of times with an autistic child, they have a really hard time sharing. They don't get the concept. And so if you just leave them with your the other kids and go do something else. And then they're, you know, screaming and fighting. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be more proactive, which can be super hard because you've got other kids, you've got stuff to do. If you can bring in help or a high school student or somebody that can come play with the kids while you're trying to cook dinner or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is to work on educating the children and there's books for autistic children. There's books for siblings of autistic children that help explain because young children are not going to understand autism, but if you can, you know, look for stories about, you know, an autistic brother and then just as they develop, they'll understand more and more. So you just kind of keep, keep at it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's some great advice, actually. I think books are, books are a huge thing. Yeah, yeah. To, especially children's books where there are pictures sort of describing what right. it looks like and the situation. So, right. no, I think that's great. Um, the last one, which is very interesting to me, is what kind of sensory sensitivities or challenges that sort of are commonly known for a lot of the autistic children? Yes, I would say one of the most common ones is sound sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times they will, if they hear a sudden loud noise, they cover their ears or they run from it. It creates anxiety, panic, pain. Um, You know, the, the, um, whatchamacallit, the lawnmower and the air blower thing and the blender, the vacuum cleaner sometimes is really, really hard on them. So you, mm-hmm. you help them learn to cope. You, some kids will wear noise canceling headphones or, or listen to music and ear pods to help cope with sound. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when they're out in public, noise can come from anywhere. And so having something to cover their ears or to listen to can really help them hope okay um, touch is a big one um, you know a lot of times unexpected touch can be really startling some kids crave it and mm-hmm. they're super affectionate and cuddly because they want to be held and have these they call it deep pressure squeezes and hugs that feels really good to them mm-hmm. um, the really active kids that are sensory seeking they'll like run and crash into the sofa and bump into things and they want to touch everything. Um, mm-hmm. They like the like kinetic sand and Play-Doh and things like that as a sensory, like they have a sensory need and they can do that stuff for hours sometimes or mm-hmm. water playing with water. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's all kinds of, you can, there's checklists online that you can go through 
And that's also something that occupational therapists, that's their field, mm-hmm. is to identify those and then help with strategies. Uh, the oral stuff is really common. Like kids that will chew on anything and they'll chew on their shirts until they're soaking wet. And we often want to give them a substitute for something to chew on that's safe. And even adults, mm-hmm. autistic adults, there's websites where they can get chew necklaces and things that look nice, but you yeah. can chew on them. So. Oh, wow. That's it's, it's amazing how, yeah. how adaptive it all has been. And it's sort of grown into figuring out the yeah. kind of needs. So yeah, no, it's, it's incredible. And I'll add one more. We all heard of fidget toys, right? The fidget, yes. the fidget spinners and the squish balls. Those sometimes are very calming to autistic kids. So that's really, and that's something with schools that should accommodate letting kids use that kind of stuff instead of saying, you know, put everything in your desk, quiet hands, you know. Yep. Yeah. No, I think I think fidget spinners were such a huge revelation yeah. when it comes to just this kind of idea of sensory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think we understood a whole lot more when fidget spinners came out. <laughs> now the last section of the show that I love to talk about is the open mic. Okay. I guess you to talk about anything that you are passionate about and want to mm-hmm. share with the audience. Um, it doesn't have to be about this topic. I mean, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah. So okay. in the last like minute or so, I'd love to let you talk with the audience okay. directly. Well, I'm all about this topic. So I did want to talk about the idea that boys get diagnosed with autism much more than girls to the point that it was thought that boys are much more likely to have autism. But there's a statistic that 75% of autistic females are not diagnosed until they're an adult. So what typically happens, boys do this too, but autistic girls are so good at this masking behavior where they study people's expressions and they learn to imitate how you're Mm -hmm. supposed to act in different situations, even though socially they don't really get why. And they don't get diagnosed. And later in life, they'll be misdiagnosed with anxiety, bipolar, borderline personality, depression, all kinds of things. And there are so many, I started a program for what we call late identified autistic women, because so many of them now are realizing that they're autistic. And it's, utterly life-changing to understand why, you know, they say why I felt so different my whole life, why I felt like I never belonged anywhere, why I felt like I couldn't understand. And now it's like, oh, that's why. So they go through this like relief and then they go through like a period of grief and anger. Like if only, you know, it's a whole journey for them. Want to make people aware of that that it's not just not just a boys thing yeah it's it's amazing just how easily you're sort of we're sort of noticing that difference in terms of how each gender each individual sort of go through it mm-hmm. um i think i think it's an amazing thing to keep discovering i know we're going to probably discover a whole lot more in a few years and there's going to be a whole lot more information for us to talk about Yes, yes. And the autistic adults are amazing advocates. So Mm -hmm. they're doing a lot to 
help people understand and do things that are affirming to autistic children versus they call it um, like conversion therapy, like for gay Mm -hmm. people to convert them into straight that for autistic kids that have gone through a conversion therapy to try to get them to act neurotypical. And so there's a lot of advocates out there that are teaching us, you know, about what we need to understand. So it's, it's out Mm -hmm. there. Well, it's amazing to see what we, what society and the world will discover in the next few years and see how much it's going to progress even further in terms of what we know. Right. Um, Yeah. So this is, this has actually been an amazing um, show for me because I love to know, I'm such a nerd in terms of knowing the lingo, (laughs) knowing the little things that I possibly have no idea how I know, but um, it's a fun thing to understand. So thank you so much, Jen, for coming on. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. And I'm so happy to spread the word and look positively at how we can support, you know, autistic kids and adults. Yes. I think especially in terms of the lingo, the terminology that we're sort of growing into understanding, I think it's always, it's always nice to see um, for me to understand it a little bit more, even if it's just me that understands it a little bit more, I think it's one more person that sort of gets to know it and gets to share it. So, and I get to, I get to tell people off if they don't use it. So that's always a good thing. (laughs) Be nice. We're all learning. I know I'll be nice. I'll be nice. I'll try. (laughs) Um, but if there is a way that other audience members would like to get to talk to you a little bit more or discuss this further, or if there's something that I've missed, um, is there a way that they're able to? Absolutely. So I have a website. It's called autism360support.com. Mm-hmm. And then you can also find me. I'm on Instagram at Jen Slayton. Okay. Um, and all my contact information is on the website. So. Okay, perfect. Well, I will have that in the description down below. If okay. you're watching on, yeah, if you're watching on YouTube, then you'll definitely see it. Um, if you're watching on other platforms, it'll probably be on the sides or somewhere else for you to find. Um, my hands are flying out everywhere because I'm trying to point <laughs> the directions. But um, no, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I definitely enjoy talking about this. Um, and yeah, hopefully we get to spread awareness a little bit more to understanding the terminology, understanding the carers as well. I think it's important to talk about their needs and talk about Absolutely. them as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. So thank you so much for joining me on the episode and thank you so much for listening and I'll see you guys in the next one. You've been listening to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights Podcast. Produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.